Hi, you are listening to Mediation Station, and this is your host, Greg Fenton. Each week we explore topics and ideas related to the experience of people with conflict and look to promote the profession of conflict resolvers. We are available to connect with at greggf at primus.ca and 647-227-4734. Visit us at our Facebook page to like us and Facebook group page to become a member. Visit YouTube to see channels for both CHHA, 1610 AM, and Greg Fenton. Listen to podcasts, past radio shows at both SoundCloud.com and at iTunes Podcasts by searching under Mediation Station in the Arts section. Follow us at our Twitter account, at Fenton Mediation. Our topic tonight is called Informing About Trauma-Informed Mediation, and our visitor is Don Kuhlman, and she's going to be with us momentarily. Also... Hanging around is the radio elf, Elfie. Hello. Hello, Yodela. Hi. Hi. Yeah. Here I am. Here you are. Here I am. Happy Passover. Happy Easter. Yeah. To all our... To all all those who celebrate. Yes. And happy belated 420. 420. Oh. For those who celebrate. Do I know that person? (laughs) Is that a person we know? That's um, that's April 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 20th. 20th. Yeah, Yeah, every year. So it's a time of of sorrow and a time of joy and... Highs and lows. Endings and beginnings and... Mm -hmm. It all came together in one weekend this year. Yeah, you haven't been here for a couple of weeks. Yeah, I had a speaking of endings. I, uh, last week, um, it was my brother-in-law's the unveiling of his uh, headstone. He mm-hmm. he died very suddenly and unexpectedly last June, and uh, so it was it was a very dreary, rainy, cold, down to your bones, cold kind of day, and mm-hmm. it was like yeah, I was just too exhausted by the end of it. Yeah, yeah. Today was a better day. Today is a better day. I think we're on the upswing overall. I'm hoping so. Yeah. Okay, so let's engage with our uh, our visitor tonight, Don. Don's been patiently waiting on hold. How are you doing, Don? I am fine. Yes. Nice to talk to you again, Don. Hi, hello. Hi. I told, I told Greg I love following you on Facebook. <laughs> you are hilarious. <laughs> Thank you. Don't don't feed into it because she, she's just <laughs> going to do more posts. I love your humor. I love it. it. It's the light of my day, honestly. I'm so glad because my best friend up in St. Marie calls it Joni Spam. <laughs> but, uh, there, there's a filter to get for that, though. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that there are people who appreciate it. I have to keep laughing, you know, and especially when you... Like our topic today, when you're someone who deals with trauma uh, as as a work, as a job, it's really important to tap into humor. Not, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk, we're not to make fun of it, of course, put in context to help us. Uh, so we have to find ways to cope with it, our own coping mechanisms. That's right, so we can yeah. handle our own compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma. There you go. So, Don, give us a sense of uh, better understanding about your professional self, your background. <coughs> Who am I and how did I get here? Is that the question? No. Um, Who are you? <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. I, um, 
so my undergrad was in psychology. My graduate school was in psychology. I have a master's in clinical psych, and so I am a non-attorney mediator. Um, and I, I spent the bulk of my grad school actually studying, and so I spent two years researching and writing about um, how the inability to oneself is related to internal mental health issues, and then the inability to forgive others is related to external mental health issues. And so I've done a lot of, just uh, as a side story, just a lot of trainings on the use of forgiveness in mediation as well, which can tie in trauma right. work. Um, and so, but, you know, one of the interesting things of my research that I found that I, I think is relevant to mediation is um, whenever the participants of our research study would talk about the wrongdoing that they had committed, they would um, significantly um, rate it as less intense or less stressful or less harmful than what someone else did to them that could have been the same wrongdoing. Does that make sense? In terms of we tend to perceive what others have done to us as more harmful than what we have done to others. Yeah, we tend to and minimize I, yeah, our own. Yes, yes. So I think that also ties into our topic today, too, in terms of, you know, I'm, I'm just doing what you do or something along those lines in terms of revenge. We could talk about revenge and um, all sorts of other side topics here. But I think it's very helpful in mediation um, in terms of just helping people do some perspective taking. So better understand, what are the things that you value or identify as being of importance to you in terms of your work and, or as a person? Yeah, um, you know, I really, I value relationships, I value people, um, but I, I think the biggest importance to me is thinking about how can I promote the best person within you, and that is a God-honest um, perspective that I try to do, and I'll just give you a quick example of what I did a couple weeks ago. I'm, I was interviewing, I'm going to have an intern this fall, and um, I was interviewing her, and midway through the interview, I think I kind of stumped her because I was like, how can I best help you? Like, how can I best help you reach your goals in life? What do you want to do? Where do you want to be? How can I help you get there? And she just kind of looked at me because, you know, the in, in theory, you think the intern is just coming to help you, right? Yeah. Um, but I really, and I, I really want to promote that within my own family, my own children, but then the people that come in my office, you know, how can they leave a little bit better in terms of being equipped to deal with maybe the conflict or the stress that's happening in their lives, and that's, that's the type of things that make me happy. Well, in addition, if they're coming to help you, in order for them to maximize the potential of that experience, I think you need to be connected with where they're at and where they want to go and find a way, what can you do to help better support them? Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the things that I take pride in in life is just connecting people and resources and or connecting people and people and um but i need to know what your needs are i need to know what you want to do in order to help you get there yeah and everybody's yeah. different too right with regard to yeah. what they're looking for where they're at at the current moment where they come from within their lived experiences and so they need maybe different supports or assistance in order to navigate through their changes of uh, life yes you know, I follow the work of a, he's a writer, his name's Rob Bell, and he, um, he talked about 
how we have to go through, like we have light, right? Like light being the good part of your life. And then we have darkness. And then we have light again. And every season is different in life in terms of we have light, we have darkness, we have light again. And, and we're not the same person through. Like once we go through the darkness, we are a totally different person. People understand that, I think, has been really part of what I think my role is in terms of, I think of it like a butterfly. Like once you've been a caterpillar and you've gone through your transformation, you can never go back. And you, you know, you've done your, your butterfly now. You can't go back to being a, a caterpillar. But anyway, I really think of people in terms of where they're at, um, how do we help them get through to maybe the next phase or maybe just helping them accept where they are. But all of that is part of this transformation process, which is really just life, truthfully. Well, you know, as people navigate through their lives, that they are affected by their lives, though they may not necessarily be connected to those lived experiences of being affected. And I think it can be so much more beneficial to help better or help people to better connect with those lived experiences. Yeah, and just accepting. I think the big word is acceptance of where you are, where you've been. Or, or, um, I think. Go yeah. ahead. Or at least to be open well, to I, it. The, I, I was thinking of like, Sometimes people want to be ashamed of their experience, and I think that also isn't helpful and can be you know, tied into our topic of trauma, too, in terms of just a lot of shame that people carry around. And I think that we've got to help people not feel so shameful of what they've learned and, and make that a different story for them. Well, I think part of that is that we live in a world that's a really about lots of judgment and so when you yeah. open yourself up you're leaving yourself somewhat vulnerable to the unpredictable yeah. of what that might entail because you're not totally in control of others well in fact you're really not others can impose and do impose on you their own sense of value yeah and i feel like that's part of what we're going to talk about tonight too is you know suspending our own judgment yeah, I was just thinking of how it, it's like the old saying, you you never step into the same river twice. And it's like life flows along and it's you're, you're never really the same person going through these experiences. But I guess that was a little bit further back than what we were talking about. Um, sorry, I was stuck no, there for a minute. <laughs> but I, I think the biggest thing that I, you know, when I talk with people, it's, how can we make this story a learning story? You know, I don't want this horrible story to define anyone on the stress that they feel. Like, I, I don't want them to stay stuck in that or be defined by that or be judged by that, whether, you know, they're judging themselves or they feel others are judging them. And I feel like you've, everyone's got a story to tell and can learn from everyone's stories. And you just have to, it's a reframe, you know. We as mediators are the kings and queens of the reframe and, and just helping people reframe their situations. Well, good. I think it's connected to what you said before about um, about how we minimize our own um, our own harmfulness. Yeah. Where are you calling in from, Dawn? I am in Liberty, Missouri, which is just outside of Kansas City, Missouri, in the middle of America. And how would you define that? What does middle America mean? <laughs> other than right in the middle. <laughs> other than geographically. What, what could we better understand about what that might mean? 
In between uh, Massachusetts and California, is that? <laughs> okay. Is there a certain kind of nature of a person that comes from the mid point of the U.S.? Um, what they say that we are uh, friendly and relatable. That's that's what they say about us here. And who's they? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Yes. The rest of America. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> So, in terms of our conversation, how, how do you see some of uh, your lived experiences as contributing to how you see and live your own life? Oh, my goodness. You know, um, I, have, I have quite a story. Um, I was raised, you know, pretty poor, and so there's a lot of elements that, a lot of things that have to happen and you have to learn to get out of poverty. And so um, I feel like I can empathize with a, you know, portion of the demographic that I serve in terms of understanding their struggles. Um, and I, I also try to train and educate. That's one of the hats that I wear in terms of our community and helping um, the professionals and helping everyone else sort of better understand why people in poverty do certain things and how can we best help these folks. Um, I just really carry a um, part of that in my heart in terms of best helping people in general. So do you see the your past, your lived experiences as being profound in terms of creating the foundation as how you identify as a person and how you practice or provide for your life? Yeah, I, I definitely think it's a huge part of my identity. And I think it's confusing for some people sometimes because they see me in a particular way and then I will say something that's like uh, a poor kid. It's kind of interesting. Um, and so I think it's kind of confusing sometimes for people. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's also, um, you know, I've had to learn a lot of skills to get out of poverty. That sounds kind of funny, but, you know, even just speaking to you, um, Ruby Payne's written a really good book on a framework for understanding poverty, and I never really understood all of it and, until I read her book, what I had to do. Um, but, you know, you have to speak in what's called formal register, which is how I'm speaking with you today versus how um, I would speak with my family. And it's just a lot, you know, just toggling back and forth between the different socioeconomic demographics is kind of interesting and, and what, it, what you have to do, what that entails. You know, there's the social us, there's the private us. Yeah. We, you know, there's different dimensions that we all have and that uh, some of us are more connected with and some of us are just who you are in private is the same what you are in public. There's no difference, per se. Yeah. And people make a lot of assumptions, too, um, when, you're, when you seem to be, you know, this well-groomed, well-educated... On a uh, physical nature. Uh, yeah, but, just yeah. looking at yeah. you, listening to you, what their senses are taking in, and maybe even looking at your LinkedIn profile or whatever. Um, it reminds me a lot of... Um, do you know the book, The Glass Castle? I think... Yeah. Yeah, it's um, just about someone who lived through abject poverty and and just roaming throughout the the um the country um in very very poor circumstances but then lifting themselves up and having to come to terms with their past and people don't 
people make assumptions about you and then when when that facade kind of slips a little bit and they see a glimpse of the another part of you that goes against their assumptions it's almost like there's a weird kind of dynamic there I think where people feel like oh I have to do something about that or explain it somehow yeah they they have to reconcile their I mean, we as a people, we're complex. We can be multiple things at multiple times, and, you know, I, I think that's part of what we have to understand is um, when we're working with folks, people, people, you know, just to kind of bring this into the trauma stuff, people can be highly successful and have a whole lot of trauma. Well, that's the thing, too, and, and when you have a client who thinks, how can you possibly relate to me? when you have all the money you need, you're well-dressed, how can you possibly relate to me and my trauma? And um, and that line between um, self-disclosure and boundaries and all that complexity that goes into it. I agree. Um, I do, I, I receive that a lot too in terms of you don't know what I've been through, you don't understand, you have, the, you know, this life and... Um, Right, you do have to navigate that very carefully. Though isn't it common uh, human nature to relate to others on a superficial level, that what we see is what we believe to be and the actual, and how much effort or attempt that we consciously make to actually want to go in a symbolic way below the waterline to learn of and about the person within? Yeah. And the way that I connect with people is through storytelling, you know, whether I'm doing a training or whether I'm um, in a client, you know, session. And so with these elements of storytelling, you, you have to find the appropriate boundaries of how much to share, and but yet still also having people connect to the story. So, so why, have you, why have you made the conscious um, or identified whatever as going into professional conflict resolution? Why did you make that step? Well, the the job actually found me um, after I had finished my master's. Well, the story actually goes a little bit further back. Um, in 2001, I met a boy, and he lived in Liberty, Missouri, and I lived in Ohio, and so I had to finish my degree, and it, we decided that I would move here, and, and you know, we'd start our life here. And I, so I moved to this city in which I know absolutely no one and so this was back in the day when you would actually open a newspaper and find a job in the classified people remember this yeah i remember um, it yeah and so i opened the classifieds and there was actually a position for a costa coordinator and i don't know if you guys have costas there i'm sure you have them in some capacity there it stands for court appointed special advocate and they are um volunteers who are appointed by the court to be with the children on abuse and neglect cases. And so I had volunteered for that position, didn't get that position, but they handed my resume down to the mediation program. Mm -hmm. And so um, I interviewed and I was pretty desperate for a job and I, I pretty much begged, might end up being my boss. She said, Don, you just looked at me in the eye and you said, I promise you I won't let you down if you hire me. And she said something in my gut told me to just go with that. And I ended up working with her in you know, my county mediation program for nine years and did small claims, I'm a tenant, domestic stuff. Um, and, but I, my, my big passion was always families. 
And so um, I did. I taught our parent education program for our county for like nine years, and then ended up going from there. So how do you see the uh, interaction amongst people in terms of their lived experiences, especially with conflict, in contributing to how they navigate through their those experiences? You know, one of the activities that I love to do as a trainer is I put two signs on the wall, okay? And so one sign says, conflict is bad, and it's all the way down on one side, and then I have conflict is good, and it's all the way over on the other side. So I create this continuum, and I make people get up out of their seats, which they love, marky comment, uh, make them get up out of their seats, and I have them stand along the wall on a continuum in terms of how they view conflict. And it is amazing to me um, where people stand. And it's, it's like that every class. Every class, mm-hmm. um, people are all up and down the continuum. And I will have them tell me why they stood at that particular spot. And it always ties back to their childhood, you know? Um, or if they are now on the side where they say con- you know, conflict is good, I will ask them, do you, would you have stood there 10 years ago, 15 years ago? And most people would say, no, I would not. I would be down there on the conflict is bad. And they talk about their life experience in terms of how they have been able to change their mindset and how they've been able to use conflict for good. But I, I, again, it goes back to everyone's experience, um, your exposure to it, your kind of your, your training in it in terms of, you know, we as mediators are forever taught, you know, that this, that a conflict is good in terms of if it's a productive conflict. And, and then I go on to have conversations with the, you know, the class about, you know, productive versus unproductive conflict and, you know, just trying to differentiate that in terms of being a mediator. But I myself would have been down on the conflict is bad for, I was down there for at least like the first 37 years of my life in terms of saying, you know, I don't think anything really good comes out of conflict, but, you know, I was raised in a house that had a lot of violence growing up, and, and so that's sort of what I pictured when I thought of conflict was sort of this extreme mm-hmm. idea of it. Yeah, so that's your lived reality. Yeah. When we talk about the word trauma, what does it mean? What are we talking about? Oh, uh, yeah. You know... In its simplest form, I think of just the brain's response to an event and whether or not the brain really has the ability to cope with the event. And so it's a, and it can be a perceived event, you know. Um, We're talking about subjective experiences for people. So why would it, though, have this term uh, provided for trauma relative to just calling it a lived experience? Yeah, you know what? I, I think that's a good question. I think, I think trauma is sort of a big, scary word. Um, you know, there's a psychologist by the name Francine Shapiro. She talks about big T traumas and small T traumas. And, you know, big T traumas are definitely what I would think of and, and what most people would think of in terms of, um, you know, sexual abuse, violence in the home, um, a parent with a mental illness. You know, there's there's what's called the Adverse Childhood Experience Survey, and you can anyone can Google that and take it, and it's a 10-question um, survey in terms of did you have these stressors growing up in your life? And if you did, 
you know, your, your brain, I hate to say it, is probably somehow affected by it. And not to sound all doom and gloom, because then there's often a follow-up what's called a resilience survey in terms of, you know, what are the resiliency factors for you that helped you deal with or cope with these experiences that were happening in your home. But I think it's the, the ACE, the Adverse Childhood Experience Survey, you know, there's a lot of things that aren't on the ACE in terms of, like, if you have a death of a parent or a death of a sibling or you have someone with, like, a a terminal illness. I mean, there's just all sorts of, of, you know, life events that are not listed on the ACE. And the ACE is also mostly geared towards your developing brain. You know, it, it doesn't really talk about, you know, once you're an adult and things happen to you. And then we've got what's called small T traumas. And I, I'll share a story of where I actually inflicted a small T trauma on a dear friend of mine. We were 14 years old, and I guess I should preface this. My friend John did not even tell me about this small T trauma until I saw him, like, last year. We had met up. We went to high school together, and then we were, we'd met up just to catch up and whatever. And he's telling me this story, and I'm like, oh, my God, John. Like, I was embarrassed. I was mortified. But I think it's important to share it because this is the life that we live in terms of we do and we say things that affect other people that sometimes we're not even mindful of. But we were 14 and um, apparently we, I had a bunch of kids over at my house and John had used the bathroom at my house and had gone number two. And as a 14-year-old kid, I of course was giving them grief and I was like, oh my gosh, John, I can't believe you did that at my house. And he swears to this day he will not use the public restroom. And that, I'm going to deem that to be a small T trauma in terms of something that happened within him. It was an experience that forever modified his behavior and his thinking in terms of um, that particular topic. But I think we mindlessly say things to people that we don't realize forever impacts them. You know, we all have these small T traumas in our life in terms of something someone has said to us that affects our behavior, affects our thinking, affects our, you know, emotional response to things. And those are just as important. You know, one of the characteristics that I think I need to mention is when the amygdala goes off in the brain, the amygdala is like a smoke alarm in your kitchen, okay? The smoke alarm in your kitchen cannot differentiate between whether you've just burnt some bacon or if your whole house is on fire, right? So the amygdala goes off just like the smoke alarm, and our brain just knows there's a danger, mm-hmm. but our brain can't differentiate whether it's just burnt bacon or the house is totally burning down. Yeah, they don't know the context of the, uh, what's right. going on. right. And that's, that's the response of our brain. And so sometimes we, as a people, it's easy to judge other people like, oh, my gosh, they really need to let that go. It's really not that big of a deal. You know, right? That's things that we say to other people. But the unfortunate reality is our brain can't sort that out. Um, and that's where, you know, we'll, we'll talk later about, you know, trauma therapy specifically in terms of helping getting the brain back on track. Well, everybody processes their moments differently anyways. Right. And it's their experience and their feelings with regard to those experiences, their feelings with regard to those experiences. And if we just impose or project whatever we believe and call that as the, the truth or the reality, 
we're missing the other part of the equation, the other person. Yeah, yeah, we're missing those opportunities for connection, absolutely. I think a lot of it is what has to do with what you said about perception. It, like, perception is everything, really, when it comes to this kind of, comes to emotional trauma anyway. And um, I, I love the story you told, and I have an opposite story where when I um, was, uh, worked as a social worker on the neurosurgical ward, uh, I once said something to a patient that I then thought to myself was a terrible, inappropriate, um, hurtful thing to say to this patient. And I flogged myself for three years for saying that to this patient. And I mm-hmm. happened to run into him um, three years later um, somewhere else. And I took that opportunity to say to him, I just really want to apologize for that thing I said to you. And he had no idea what I was talking <laughs> about. It didn't even enter his consciousness. And he said to me, even if I did remember that you said that to me, it wouldn't have bothered me. And so I think we all have to really pay attention to what hurts us or what bothers us isn't necessarily what hurts or bothers someone else. And we have to really be mindful of that. Yes. So, yes. so, so I, go yes. ahead. Go ahead, Don. No, I was going to say I had no memory of me doing that to my friend John, and he'd been carrying it around his whole life. That's crazy to me. But, yes, it happens. Well, many of the things we do, uh, well, they have an I- impact or effect, though not a lot of them may be intentional. They're not purposeful. They're just done happenstance right. in some way. They're in the moment. Right. We're not necessarily aware and connected to those moments, per se. So when we are aware, and I you know, really highly promote about self-awareness as being foundational for a lot of us as practitioners, let alone as human beings, and the uh, emotional intelligence. And you can't expect someone to know how something affects you unless you tell them or you ask. You know, I think people just assume, again, assume, well, of course, how could you, how could I not be hurt by that? You know, you knew you were hurting me. And uh, as a Gemini, I can tell you I say a lot of things just off the cuff without anything making a pit stop at my brain without intention behind it to hurt anybody. And that highlights the importance of communicating, being able to communicate when you feel hurt. I, I had a colleague call me not too long ago, and I had said something that had you know hurt her feelings. And I said, first and foremost, you know my intent was never to hurt your feelings. And she says, Don... I know that, and that's why I'm calling you. And so I think you have to create, it's going to sound funny, but a a safety around you Mm -hmm. that people feel safe that they can come and talk with you and know that your intents were not to be malicious or hurtful, but it was to them, you know? Um, So I, I think letting people know that you are safe to have those tough conversations with is part of the process too mm-hmm. well you're right it's just as likely someone's going to say what's wrong with you can't you take a joke what kind of a yeah. what kind of a wimp mm-hmm. would take it that way please yeah. so let's probe this more why do you see trauma as being the foundation of a mediation model that you identify as trauma informed mediation yeah so 
maybe this is a confession, um, but the model actually found me. I was approached by a mediation group about 2017 to speak at a conference, and they said, hey, Don, you know, we would like for you to speak on trauma-informed mediation. And so I was like, okay, great, you know, I take the gig and whatever. And then a couple weeks before, maybe a month before the event, I truthfully, I Googled trauma-informed mediation so I could learn about this topic I was supposed to teach about. Mm-hmm. And there was literally nothing there. Like, back in 2017, nothing was there at all. But trauma-informed was really starting to come on the scene at that time in terms of, like, trauma-informed schools, even trauma-informed yoga. And so it made sense that it was going to be moving in that direction. But I literally had to create it at that point. So they gave me a topic, and I then created it. But I, the interesting thing was that uh, a few people around the U.S. were creating it at the same time as well. And so I was on Zoom calls with other um, courts in the United States in terms of how they were perceiving it and defining it. And then I was doing a training in, um, a couple months after that conference, and I was just kind of kicking around my ideas on what I thought it was, and a colleague comes up to me, and she says, Hey, Don, um, what do you... She goes, I, I, I was presented to present on, uh, on trauma-informed mediation myself, and she was like, I want to see what you did. And so we swapped PowerPoints, and they were like 90-something percent alike. We could not believe it. And so she was like, I think we're really on to something. And so then um, she said, I'm also the TED Talk coordinator here in our town. And she was like, I think you should do this as a TED Talk. And literally that's how the whole thing came to be, which is just crazy. Well, you've taken it now as a foundation <laughs> of your of that moment when you were asked to talk about with those three words together, trauma informed mediation, yeah. which yeah. necessarily didn't connect with you per se to the depth of where it's at at this moment. Yeah, yeah. At the beginning it was really just a few thoughts. Um, and, and now it's, it's definitely a framework now that I live by, I teach by. Um, it, it continues to grow, and every day I get asked more questions, which make me think more about the framework and how I think it, you know, the relevance of it. Um, it it's, a growing, it's a growing entity every day, I think. What are the components of the model? Yeah. Um, so I basically have five components. And the first component is really just creating an awareness within the mediator of what I call brain-body dysregulation in terms of we, we, as a, we have to recognize that the parties are operating out of the amygdala in terms of if they're having these fight, flight, freeze responses and then just trying to navigate the calming of the brain so we can get folks to kind of use the prefrontal cortex, which is where the decision-making, problem-solving process takes place. And really, I'll be honest, I feel like the first component is just having mediators have a basic understanding of the neuroscience of mediation, which is just fun. It's just fun to say that. Um, The second component is a reliance on the guiding principles of transformative mediation, which are empowerment and recognition. Two big things happen um, in mediation when there is a dysregulation in the brain. One is that parties often feel hopeless and helpless and out of control, and so that's where the empowerment piece comes in and helping them recognize choice. 
And then the other component is recognition. Um, when we are dysregulated, we have this inability to empathize and recognize that other people are struggling too. And so really pushing those two components and utilizing them in the mediation process is, I found to be very helpful. And then the third component is creating a mindfulness in mediation. And so when I say mindfulness in mediation, I'm just really talking about an awareness of thoughts, an awareness of emotions, and also thinking about emotion regulation, and then just an awareness of behaviors in terms of how is this behavior affecting this interpersonal dynamic that we have. And then the next component, I have what's called the ability to mediate in terms of thinking about the client's ability. Because if the brain is really dysregulated, clients are not really able to do the mediation process. And so that's where in my brain, after I've been trying all these other components, you know, work, helping them try to do the process, focusing empowerment, recognition, mindfulness, reframing, you know, you got every mediator tool out there. And really, they're just not able to. That's when I really start to just practice my own acceptance of where they are and thinking about how can I best help this person. Because truthfully, when I'm talking about this inability to do the mediation process, sometimes I've got people who are literally screaming in my office that they want a lobotomy, that they feel out of control. I have people having panic attacks. And that's where, you know, Joni, you were talking about secondary trauma. I was having these feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. You know, the, the mirror neurons in my brain are activated um, in terms of my amygdala is fired because their amygdala is fired, and which is what our brain is supposed to do in terms of empathy and connection. However, that can have a, ta you know, a taxing effect on a provider. And so I was really trying to find my own ways to help these folks and not feel so helpless and hopeless. And then that's where... I just started meeting people in my community and reading a ton of books on how do I help these people who are clearly, I'm, I'm going to use the word suffering, um, suffering with the pain that they are experiencing, whether it's based on this conflict or I'm trying to talk to them about like a parenting plan and they're telling me about how they got molested when they were six years old. Like, and I, I was trying to cope with all of that. Like, I'm not a therapist. I'm a mediator. How, you know, how can I best help these folks? And so... That's where the fifth component comes in in terms of just collaboration with community resources and, you know, just giving clients a simple one-page handout of, hey, here's some folks that can help you. Um, these are some different types of therapies that could be effective. And then that way, if people take advantage of it and use some of those resources or at least start their own journey of healing, I feel like I've done my job. Yeah, and that's the power of self-determination. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When you refer to being trauma-informed, to, to whom are you referring? The participants who have experienced trauma or the practitioner or and or the practitioner who may have experienced it too? Uh, yes, all of the above. Um, I feel like we as providers really need to be, and you were using this word, just mindful of our own stuff in terms of our own triggers, our own perceptions, our own life experiences that we bring in. Um, I wish I could remember this article I read once, but it said the only neutral mediator is a dead one, and I just cracked up. Because um, we all, it's hard to be completely neutral, right? We're human, and so mm -hmm. we think that we are blank slate, and, you know, 
but we have we carry our own lives into that session and so being able to regulate our own emotions is going to be a huge component of the mediation process and obviously being aware and having an empathy for others is going to be a huge part of this and I feel like we have to part of being trauma informed means just looking at folks through a compassionate lens and you know the, the operating paradigm of this trauma-informed is asking the question, and, and maybe not a literally asking the question, but in your mind, you know, what happened to you versus what's wrong with you? And that kind of ties us back to the beginning in terms of we talked about judgment and being judgy with our clients or having judgmental thoughts, you know, just having a mindfulness of how, what internal questions are we asking ourselves as mediators, and then also how can I best help these folks who are really struggling? Yeah, and it's, I kind of think of trauma-informed practice in general as being a lot like chicken soup. It it might not help, but it won't hurt. Oh, and I like that. Yeah, and it's like if you if you treat all your clients and all your mediations as though there has been big T trauma and not just small T trauma, even those who have gone through small T traumas and no big T traumas, there are people like that out there, I believe. Um, <laughs> um, it doesn't hurt to, to practice that way, to practice in a way that just doesn't hurt people as much as possible one of the one of the things that I take pride in is that often after clients will leave I will get an email or a phone call or just a a thank you at the end of the session and these are people who did not reach an agreement right you know they did not reach an agreement however they still thank me for the process and they thank me for just being them I I feel like that's yeah. Part of it. Well, I would sense that they, they felt your compassion, your empathy with regard to their experience. You didn't take ownership of it. You were there yeah. connecting with them to help support them to define and determine and make decisions their own way. Yeah. Sometimes the agreement's besides the point. I know. And that's, and that's really, too, part of it. I, I just don't want... I feel like sometimes even by the court or by mediators, people feel this pressure to reach an agreement but I I think part of this this framework says if we pressure people or force people to do these things are we re-traumatizing them are we you know subjecting them to something really stressful that they just don't have to just because we have our own issues you know and we're we're compelling them in some way to fit into our box rather than adapting our process for them Right. And so, you know, even the process that I try to promote here is that mediation can be as simply an opportunity for individuals to come together to have a conversation. As simple as that. There's no concrete need to make a resolution about a specific issue. Yeah. And resolutions are... Yeah. Sorry, resolutions are are kind of living organisms in in a way. They, They grow, they change, they shrink, they... There, the circumstances change, um, feelings change, and what seemed to be an agreement might not be a, a week or so down the line. 
Absolutely. Just meeting people where they are. Yeah. All so, part of the process. So why, why do you feel it's important or sense it's important to have this kind of conversation? <sighs> I really want mediators to be aware of the subjective experience component of it. I really want mediators to be aware of the neuroscience of mediation. Um, I want, I also, which we really didn't have time to dive into today, but if the brain can change for the negative, the brain can change for the better. And so we're really beginning to understand these beautiful words like neuroplasticity in terms of if the brain is given the right parameters to heal, it will do so. And so I feel like in addition to using this big scary word trauma, we always have to include this great beautiful word hope. People can do that can heal the brain and I think that we have to instill that hope sometimes into our clients in terms of, hey, these are some simple things you can do, a gratitude journal, focusing on the positive, tell me three good things, every, write down three good things every day. You know, so even sometimes that stuff kind of extends beyond mediation, but it's helping them with the big picture of the conflict. Okay, so we're going to close out very soon. Are there some resources that you can help provide for people to better be better yeah. informed? So if I could tell anyone to read anything, it would be Bethel von der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score. There, um, and in terms of mindfulness, I think a good book would be Dan Harris's 10% Happier. I will tell you, he likes to use the F word, so be prepared for that. But Is that fun funny. or something? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I've been following the work of Sean Aker lately on some positivity stuff in terms of helping people um, rewire their brains in that, in that positive way. And then Dr. Nadine Burke, uh, Burke Harris, she is really big into trauma, and she's the Surgeon General now out in California, and she's got a TED Talk, and I think she just released a book. She's really big on how the, the ACE score is related to health and mental health issues. Um, she's doing some really good work. Okay. We're out of time. I think we'll revisit you and having further conversation. Thank you very much for presenting with us about trauma-informed mediation. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right. Have a good night. So I want to just put it out there that uh, I want to dedicate tonight's show to my sister who passed away this Friday night. And, you know, I went through the show. I did my thing. And uh, here I am. So see you, Robin. <laughs>